Mark chapter 15, verse 40 to 47. Let me go ahead and read this for us. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and the young, James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought, brought a, bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus died, and he was buried. And, and to some people, that itself, that alone, is a controversial claim. He died and he was buried. Uh, one of the most prevailing arguments against the historical case for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ today, even to this day, is actually this hypothesis called the swoon hypothesis. It's the argument that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Um, he only appeared to have died, and then he woke up at some point in the tomb and reappeared to his disciples in his mortal body. Could that explain the empty tomb? Uh, and our passage today gives us two very rational reasons to say no to that. Okay, one is a historical reason, and, and the other is a medical reason. Okay, the historical reason is, here we know Romans had full oversight, total oversight over the crucified. And in, in most cases, crucified criminals were not even given the, the honor of being buried. Okay. Um, and so you, you have to go see Pilate, which is what Joseph if Arimathea does, you have to go see Pilate, get special permission to take the body and give the body a proper, honorable burial. And, and Pilate, given that he understood Jesus wasn't truly guilty, grants this you know, to, to Joseph. But he has to first verify that Jesus was really dead. right? So he calls the one who was in charge of overseeing the execution, the centurion, and tells him to go verify whether Jesus really is dead. Because this is also historical if a Roman soldier um, somehow loses his grip on a prisoner or someone he's supposed to execute, that punishment falls on him. So that's why the Philippian jailer in the later in the book of Acts, when he loses his grip on the prisoners, he decides to kill himself because that's his own fate. Um, now, given all of this historical context, to posit that somehow, okay, the Romans just dropped the ball. Okay? It's just kind of oops, and left him alive and handed him to his followers. That's stretching the historical imaginations beyond the realm of rationality. Okay, so that's, that's the first historical implausibility of this whole thing. And then there's the medical implausibility. And I don't know if you knew this, during the late 80s or something like that, the Journal of American Medical Association had actually published an article on why Jesus was most probably dead even before the spear went in his side, based on our knowledge of how crucifixions were performed 
Add on to that the scourging, the crown of thorns, the dehydration. For Jesus to suffer all of this, lose all that blood and water, to be hung on the cross, and after three days, remove the rock that covers the tomb, overpower the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, and then walk for miles and miles to where his disciples are, appear to them healthy enough to convince them that he has conquered death, uh, is stretching the medical realm of possibilities. Okay. So uh, there's actually a doctor named Alexander Metherell, who is a MD, teach, taught at University of California. He concluded that this swoon, swoon theory is medically impossible and at best, he says, it's fanciful. So there's that. The bigger question is, why is this swoon hypothesis even positive? Why, why do people even consider this? And it's because of this, the empty tomb. The empty tomb is historically cemented as a fact that the disciples did go to the tomb and find it empty. The disciples didn't see a dead body in the tomb and then go preach about a resurrected body to their death. Okay, no historian, even secular historians, they don't argue that today. Um, the empty tomb is a fact and that requires an explanation and it's one or the other. Jesus either walked out before he really died or he walked out after he really died. And if it's the latter, if he walked out after he really died, what does that mean? What does that make him? It makes him the great I am. It makes him the, the creator of the universe. And what does that make you? What does that make me? That's equally important. It makes you and me his creatures, his subjects. See the importance of the matter? If he really died, then his empty tomb is the most important event in your life and my life. We're encountering the great I am here. Even though it happened 2,000 years ago, it is still the most significant event for you and for me. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications of the, the resurrection next week. But for today, I want to focus on the, the burial of Jesus and, and show you what Mark is showing us through that. Why the event of his burial is itself a significant event. We, we confess it in our creeds. We say... Um, he, he was died and he was buried, and then he rose again. Why do we mention that thing in between, that he was buried? What's the, what's the significance of that event? And um, what I want you guys to understand is that the burial of Jesus is part of the gospel. It's part of the good news. The burial is part of the good news. And, and this account shows us how. Um, it shows us a couple of things about the event of the burial. Those who saw, those who saw the good news, and those who got the good news, and... Lastly, through that, we learn how we can see and how we can get the good news as well. Okay? The burial shows us who saw the good news, who got the good news, and how we can see and get the good news. All right? So, number one. Here we go. Those who saw the good news. Um, I don't know if you notice, there's something about this very crucial moment here in the gospel when the definite death and burial of Jesus are confirmed, and that is this. No male disciples are present. None of the 12 apostles are present. They're nowhere to be found. Where are they? They're in hiding. All of them. Uh, they're all fled. They're all in hiding. First, in, in verse 40, you have specific names instead of women. Women followers of Jesus being mentioned. There's Mary Magdalene, meaning Mary from the region of Magdala. And she's the one delivered from seven demons, we, we, we see in other Gospels. And there's also Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, which some argue is Mary, the mother of Jesus, while some other argue she's not because her son's name is James the Younger, which means 
that's today's equivalent of James Jr., which means his father's name is James as well, which is not Joseph, so this is probably not Jesus' father, or, or, or Mary is not Jesus' mother here. And this goes, points to, to the, the common names that they had back then. Mary was a very common name. The, James was a very common name. John was a very common name. Um, John's a very common name today. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. But that adds credibility to this account. It, it's accurate to their cultural context. It's, it's like, you know, given in any English ministry context, you have a dozen Hannahs and Graces and Jameses and Johns. Uh, that's their context, right? That's, it speaks to their accuracy of the context. And there's also Salome, who we see in Matthew is the mother of James and John, the disciples. So there they are, mentioned very, very explicitly, very clearly. Why? So you can go to them and find them and corroborate these events. More importantly, they're mentioned first and foremost here as those who witnessed both Jesus' death and burial. And as you will see next week, they were first to witness the resurrection as well. No male disciple, not one, not a single male disciple was present to witness firsthand any of these. Okay. Um, they were showed, of course, the revealed resurrected body of Christ later on, but as primary witnesses, the ones who were first on the scene were these women. And until they had seen for themselves, they had to rely on the testimonies of these women. And Christian theologians have made this point, apologists, logicians have made this point from C.S. Lewis to Tim Keller to N.T. Wright and Richard Bauckham and these scholars. This is one of the strongest evidences we have for the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts. Why? Because if the disciples were fabricating these events, they, they wanted to sort of spread this false gospel about this false resurrection. And they wanted the very first Christians who were mostly Jews, by the way, Jewish men in particular, they would not have presented women as the primary witnesses. Especially when it comes to the three most important events of, of Christianity. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Why? Because during this time, you've heard this before, women have very low status. Uh, they... they so low that their testimonies were not admissible in court. That's how low their status was. Um, they were viewed as inferior, unreliable. Uh, in, in some Roman jur jurisprudence, they were considered to be hysterical and therefore totally unreliable. And, and there were Roman historians who, who, during the early church, tried to argue against the whole account of the gospel simply based on this point that their primary witnesses are women. So, in other words, why on earth, if you're fabricating these events, why on earth would you place, establish these women as the primary witnesses of this event? You have no, you, get, you gain nothing. You gain no practical benefit by fabricating it this way. There's only one rational historical explanation for that, and that is because that's what happened. The women were there witnessing Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. God had ordained that these women would be the first to witness the three most important events of, of the entire redemptive history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. So who gets to see the good news? Who gets to see the gospel in action? And not just see it, but see it most intimately, front row seat. Who gets to be the primary witnesses? Even those who've been discounted by their society and their culture. Surely not them. They get the front row seats. Those who appear to be the nearest to Jesus, right? these Jewish men who are considered to be the nearest to Jesus, were in this most crucial moment completely absent. 
They completely missed it. And this comes true. The first becomes last. And the last becomes first. And I wonder if there are any of you here who are thinking maybe, perhaps, you'll be the last person to see the truth of the gospel. Right? Maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you're skeptical. And you're wondering, will I ever? Maybe I'm the last person to see the truth of the gospel because I'm, I'm too skeptical. I'm too cynical. I'm... You think you might be the farthest from the kingdom. Or maybe it's because of the, the, the kind of life that you led in the past. But that's all based on your appearance compared to the appearances of others. You actually... Just given that fact alone, that you feel like you're the farthest away, could be the closest. Okay. Closest witnesses to the gospel. And on the other hand, if you think you're the closest, if you, if you think, yeah, I'm the closest to Jesus, unlike them, uh, you might be the farthest. Okay. You might be the farthest. That's the irony to this. Who sees the good news? Who gets to see the good news? The last. The last and the first become last and and then we see who gets the good news who gets it right it's interesting if, if you look at verse 43 uh, this Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council is said to have been looking for the kingdom of God isn't that interesting with all his reputation as a Pharisee as a law-abiding Jew he didn't find the kingdom, but he was looking. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a seeker. And it also means he had placed all the hopes of God fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament, the everlasting kingdom that he promised David, for example, in 2 Samuel 7. All of such hope will be fulfilled in Jesus. He came to Jesus, his body, looking for the kingdom of God. And that speaks to his faith. Why would you look for an eternal kingdom at the cross, at, in front of a dead body? Because he believed there was more to that. Now, in the Gospel of John, uh, the Apostle John also mentions Nicodemus. Uh, as a friend of Joseph of Arimathea, who also accompanies him to the burial of Jesus. They, they go to him together. These two are both very highly influential members of the council. And meaning, they were not just a... By the way, an average Jewish person would be extremely law-abiding. Love the law, obey the law. Right? Jesus himself was a Jew who obeyed the law. But these were above and beyond the average Jew. These were highly influential, moral, and law-abiding men, recognized by everyone in the Jewish community to be excelling in the way that they observed the Torah. And still, they were seekers. Remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You, even you, Nicodemus, even you, must be, not probably should think about, consider the potential of, you must be born again. With all of your morality, law-keeping, and Jewishness, you must be born again. Even you. And, and naturally, Nicodemus was shocked, if not offended, because, and then you look at the rest of the gospel and the, and the Jewish treatment of the so-called sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, you see why. Because they, they need, they need radical change, not me, was the view. Right? If anyone needs to be born again, it will be the tax collector, it will be the prostitute, it will be the woman caught in adultery, it will be the Samaritans. But surely not I. And Jesus says, 
Yes, you too. He equalizes the field. You, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Same thing he said to the rich young ruler who says, then who can be saved? Meaning, on their own, nobody, nobody. By works, no one can be saved. By works of the law, no one can be perfected. Paul goes as far as to say this in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he says, there shouldn't be a but, but he says, but, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, as nothing, for the sake of Christ. It means nothing in light of Christ. That's the gospel equation. If you have everything, like Paul lists here, his resume, if you have everything minus Jesus, you have nothing. If you have nothing, like the women who are at the tomb, but you have Jesus, you have everything. That's the gospel equation. If you have everything minus Jesus, you have nothing. If you have nothing plus Jesus, you have everything. So even to someone like Nicodemus, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and not understand these things? Meaning, this has been the whole point God's been trying to communicate to Israel. What you need more than anything is grace. It's grace, not works. Grace. And, and they missed that point. Even the closest people to Jesus missed that point. Remember how badly Peter missed the point? Boy, did he miss the point. He says to Jesus, this event of grace, right? This clinching event of grace where you become the blood sacrifice, Jesus, the, the final offering once and for all for all people will not take place. That will never happen to you. Never, Lord. And to which Jesus says, get behind me, friend, disciple, student, Satan, get behind me. Just soon, I will never say that to you. Take heart. I will, whatever error, theological error, yeah, I will never say, get behind me, Satan, unless I'm joking. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Right? So what does it mean to get it? What does it mean, then, to get the good news? It doesn't mean that you're content being a moral person. Um, it doesn't mean that you follow Jesus in close physical proximity. You have all the appearances of of a disciple of Christ. It means this, that you get the universal need we have of God's grace. You understand the desperation for grace. If that's the only basis for salvation offered to us. It's offered to the worst of us, it's offered to the best of us because we are before God, before the throne of God, before the holy of holies, the same. These women, lowest in their society, must be born again. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, highest in their society, must be born again. Jews must be born again. Gentiles must be born again. We all must be born again. Understanding this, we all need the grace of God. That's the central message of the whole Bible. And these two men, they got that. They got the good news. They came to believe that there is grace even for the Pharisee. They realized it doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how influential I am in the, in the, in the Jewish community. And it doesn't matter that I'm a member of the high council doesn't matter that I'm a Pharisee. That's not how I get into the kingdom of God. Not the reputation I had before man. It's by being born again. It's having a new heart that comes from God, sprinkled clean, 
The heart of stone removed, given the heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. That's how I'm made righteous. It's by grace, not by works. And we know particularly how, why Joseph and Nicodemus got that, because they're so free. They're so free from the need to safeguard their reputation from this point on. Uh, it says in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea took courage, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It took a lot of guts. Why? Why would it take guts to, to ask for the body of Jesus? Because giving him a proper burial during this time, right, and doing all the things listed in verse 46, taking him down, wrapping him in, in linen shroud, which commentators also note assumes they, they had to wash the body as well first beforehand, then laying him in a tomb cut out of the rock. All of that was done for one reason only, and that is to show your undying love, undying affection for the one who died. It is the final act of love towards that person. And think about that. They're doing this for Jesus. Right? The implications of that. Jesus was just condemned by the Romans for high treason, by the Jews for blasphemy. Both punishable by death in both communities, both jurisprudence. And Joseph and Nicodemus are coming forward saying, we want to honor him. We love him. We're loyal to him. There's no riskier way of coming out as a Christian than that. They're coming out as Christians to a world that hates Christ. They're coming out as Christians to a world that just crucified Christ. And what Mark is leading us to infer from this, something he does very often is, is that when you're born again, this is how you know you've been born again, this is how you really, you've really gotten the good news, that you've found the kingdom of God. You can take a stand for Christ even before those who have the power to hurt you. You can take a stand for Christ. Right? And, and this is, I think, a very needed and powerful testimony for you and I. Because we do live in a context, right, where standing up as a Christian can mean we risk being hurt, whether that's being hurt vocationally, academically, mentally, emotionally, even physically, when we, stand, when we take a stand for Christ, we risk being hurt. When we come out as Christians to a world that hates Christ, we risk being hurt. If we don't come to grips with this, okay, if you, really, if you don't let this sink in, you will not evangelize. Okay? You will not share the gospel with your neighbors, with your coworker, with your friend, with your family member, if you, if you, unless you let this sink in and come to grips with this courage. It takes courage when you don't know where they're coming from, whether they're, they're more the conservative mold or liberal mold, and whether they're going to be offended by your view of biblical sexuality or biblical views of how, how we treat, treat refugees and immigrants. You don't know what will offend who, right? Which biblical view will offend who? You, you risk that, see? You risk it. It takes courage to take that risk and jump in and say, I'm a follower of Christ. What do you call it? When you, when you enter a situation that are riddled with unpredictable factors, 
elements out of your control, but nevertheless, you know it's the right thing to do, therefore you jump in. What do you call it? That's courage. That's what courage is. It takes courage. And when you have that courage, even it, I would even go as far as say, if you have the, even the desire, the desire to cultivate that courage, that's how you know you've gotten the good news. Right? It's got to come to life. Right? Faith has to come into action. It's got to come to life. So let this be a challenge for you and me. Okay? Let's, let's allow this to be a challenge for us. Are we thinking missionally? What was Jesus' mission? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. Are you on his mission? Are you seeking and saving the lost? Are you living the life of Christ, eating with and fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners with the hopes of them coming to know the gospel? Are you seeking and saving the lost? And do you have the courage to seek and to save the lost? So tied in with that, how can we really see and get the good news? How can we, okay, where do we draw the courage, in other words? Where do we get the courage? Short answer is this, it's from your heart that is resting securely and firmly in His grace. In His grace. It's when you are certain it is not your performance that gets you in. It's not your approval from men that gets you in, but sheer grace through faith alone. That's when you're free to take a stand, regardless of what people might say. Right? Because, why? You're not living to perform for them. You're not living to earn their approval. Right? You're living by grace. You're accepted. You're in. You're in the inner circle. You're approved and accepted and loved and known by grace, not because you perform, not because you've, you've proved yourself to be acceptable, not because you're afraid of rejection, right? but because you're found in grace. It's because you're loved. It's because you're already in because you already have all the status and reputation you need in Christ. You have this person who would die for you to the point of joining you in the lowest point of your life, who would love you to the point of joining you in the lowest point of your life, your grave. Right? You have a lover here who will go to the grave with you. Right? That's what we have in Christ. He went down to our lowest place, the grave. But not to remain there, but to bring us, bring us out. So, God says in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And the truest fulfillment of that, that promise, is found right here in Mark chapter 15. The Lord your God goes with you, and He will never, ever leave you or forsake you, even to the grave. Even to your burial, he is with you. Um, without spoiling the movie Parasite, and I'm not necessarily recommending that you see it, I thought it was a great movie. But, um, my parents saw it and they walked away somewhat disappointed. I walked away amazed. The reason, my dad said, the reason why he didn't you know, think it was great is because it was so dark. It was so dark, it was so gloomy. And, to, and I said that I, to him immediately. I, I said, that's why I liked it so much. And he just kind of gave me a look. What is wrong with you? What kind of a Christian are you? Um, 
I said sometimes, sometimes I like dark and gloomy, and this, I'm dead serious. It, the reason why I like it is because it accentuates for me my need for the gospel. In the entire movie, and again, without spoiling it, right, the, the, the family that used to live in that half basement, right, in Korean it's called Pan Chiha, okay? The whole, the whole darkness and the gloominess of it is because they're all alone there, okay? And the whole point is, the whole, really, the whole premise of the movie is how they get out. They want to get out of that half basement and, and get up, climb up to the mountaintop where, where the rich folks are, essentially. See, what was missing entirely in the, in, in the movie, amidst this class warfare and the whole, oh, I need to get out of my half basement. Nobody, nobody from the top came down to meet them in the half basement. Much less to say, I'll live with you in the half basement. I'll make my life here with you in the half basement. They were alone. They were abandoned. They were lonely. And to me, that highlights to me the hunger we all have for that some savior to come down to meet us where we are, meet us in our panchia, in our half basement, and lift us up out of it. And that's what, see, that to me highlights the need for the gospel. In a very backhanded way, it's preaching the gospel in my mind. It's saying we need someone to come down and be with us, and that's what we have in Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's come down to our half basement. He's come down even to our grave to lift us up. That's what we have in him. And when you understand that, when you understand that's really the central message of the 66 books of the Bible, that's when you say goodbye to the old. You say hello to the new. You, the old way of trying to prove your worth. Get yourself out of that half basement, whatever that is. A lack of academic success, reputation, or recognition, or lack of material wealth, or good appearance, or whatever it is, getting out of debt, that doesn't define you anymore when you're defined by grace, when you're defined by someone coming to love you and receive you for who you are and even lift you up out of who you are to be who you are truly, truly meant to be. It's to the extent that you hear his voice saying this to you, promising this for you from the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that's when you say goodbye to the old. That's when you take courage and follow him. That's when you take courage and step into the newness of life that he's offering you. I'll close with this final illustration. Um, in the office, when um, Steve Carell is on for his final episode, the episode is titled Goodbye, Michael. There's a pretty, I think, realistic scene where, and funny at the same time, where he gets his final paycheck as acting manager. And the reality hits him. Just the fact that he's no longer going to be the, the boss of anyone. He's not going to have a steady income. Right? No longer the world's best boss, like his mug says. Um, he'll be moving to a new state with a new place. No job, no subordinates. Right? He's leaving everything behind. And he starts breaking down. He starts freaking out in his office. Right? He, just starts, he starts saying, like, I can't, I can't do this. He says, all the TV channels are going to be different. I'm not going to be able to find my shows. I have to start my improv class at level one again, and the credits don't transfer. He's just, just rambling about why he can't remove his life from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Boulder, Colorado. And then he, and then he calls his fiance, and he hears her voice. 
hears Holly's voice. She says, she says a couple of things. She says, hello. She says, are you okay? And then she does a funny voice. And then he's laughing again. And then he says, I'll see you later tonight at the airport. And I love you. And they hang up. And suddenly he's fine. Suddenly, and then, and then he's ready to go down the list of goodbyes he has to say, all the other people in the office. He starts crossing them out again. He's totally ready, totally composed, ready to say goodbye to the old, step into the new. All because he heard the voice of his lover. All because he heard the voice of his lover. Where do we get the courage to say goodbye to the old, say hello to the new? The, the, goodbye to the old way of trying to perform our way into the circle of social acceptance and, and approval. It's by hearing the voice of your Savior. It's by going to the Word of God daily, moment by moment, remembering His voice, what He's spoken to you, what He's promised you in the Scriptures. When you listen to Him, right, it warrants your trust. It brings you to trust in His voice, and you will be, to use a biblical term, encouraged, given courage. You'll be encouraged to step into obedience and live as a follower of Christ. Go to His Word. He's not in the grave. He's speaking. He's alive and he's speaking to you through his word. Go to his word. Trust in his voice. Live the new life he's promised you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son who was willing not only to come and die for us, but also to be buried with us. And then to raise us up along with him in, in, into the newness of life. God, help us realize this is what we need. This is what we've always wanted. Not for a love that we have to earn and work for and improve, climb up to a love that comes down to where we are. A love that freely gives itself to us. A love that knows us for who we are, yet loves us fully at the same time. And help us to realize this, that we have this in Jesus Christ and no one else. Everything is, at best, an imitation of that of Him. Help us to come to a realization of this. Help us to then, therefore, live with the courage that you offer us. As you fill us, fill us your, with your Holy Spirit because you've made us your temple now. You've made us your new temple forever. Your dwelling place forever. So encourage us, Lord, to proclaim to the world our love for you and our affection for you. To come out to the world as your followers, as your disciples, as your lover. Give us this courage, Lord. Just as you have been so brave and so courageous in identifying with us, may we be courageous in identifying with you. We pray all this in your Son's name.